Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I'm honored to be here with a longtime member of the Spectrum community, Donald R. McAdams. Thanks for talking with all of us today. It's my pleasure. So I'm looking forward to talking to you in part because you've been such an important part of the Adventist Forum story and your work as a historian and an administrator and a kind of educational pioneer and advocate uh, has impacted a lot of the world that um, Adventism has uh tried to make a difference in, but we're also here to talk about your book, Ellen White and the Historians, A Neglected Problem and a Forgotten Answer. And we're uh, doing a little bit of uh, historiography here um, in that we're going to tell a few stories. I'd like to maybe start out uh, before we get to the book and your research, could you just start with taking us back to the young Don McAdams, why you decided to pursue a career in history? I started reading history books when I was probably under 10, actually. Uh, when I was a student at Tacoma Academy, I used to go to the public library, check out you know, two or three books. And then when I needed to return them, I would check out two or three more. And I think I read more books that were not required that during my high school years than I read books that were required. And the books that I chose for myself were far more interesting as a rule. And I ended up just reading a lot of history. So I decided when I went to college uh, that I would be a history major. There was no question about that. But what do you do as a history major? Well, everyone told me that law school would be good. So I started Columbia Union College with an intention to go to law school, but majoring in history. And I would say the person who changed my life in many ways, in fact, I would say, other than my parents, Grady Smoot has probably had a bigger influence on me than anyone else. He came to CUC when I was a junior and I ended up taking every history course he taught. He was a very good teacher. And uh, he uh, pointed out to me that I could get a job where people would pay me to read history and talk about it. Amazing. And I thought, what a deal. <laughs> Forget law school, this is gonna be a lot more fun. Uh, so, you know, I applied to several graduate schools and actually I, I got into all those that I applied to and I, I chose Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. And uh, I chose uh, as my, among my fields of, of specialty, my specialty was British history, particularly 18th century British history, not Reformation history. And uh, a supporting field was the French Revolution another, and Napoleon. Another supporting field was American history. Uh, because you can see I was zeroing in on the 18th century. The 18th century is the century that really interests me. Uh, it's, it's, it's uh, I think, inarguable that uh, the last 500 years of history have been dominated by the expansion of Western civilization. Mm -hmm. uh, colonialism, uh, imperialism, trade, technology. I mean, uh, the West has given to the world not only technology, science and technology and industrialization, it's also given the world democracy. And the 18th century, and in Britain was a place where democracy and the Industrial Revolution were really uh, coming on strong and actually leading the way in Europe. So I thought it was a very interesting thing to pick. Uh, so when I was at Duke, I had uh, some courses in uh, the French Revolution and Napoleon. And uh, the story, I think I mentioned it in the book, is that I was a faithful member of the local Durham Adventist Church, about 60 members, about 30 of whom showed up every <laughs> Sabbath. And we had an evangelistic campaign with the conference evangelist, Archer Livengood. He came in with his trailer and his wife 
and uh, she played the piano and he sang and, um, and preached. And I was there one night, uh, I invited one of my graduate student friends to go. My wife and I were there with this other couple and uh, Elder Livengood got up and started talking about the French Revolution. And he said some things that I happened to know weren't true <laughs> because I was actually taking a class that very semester uh, on the French Revolution. So I went up to him afterwards and I said, Elder Livengood, really, there are some things you really shouldn't say. I mean, that's not really the way it happened. And he said, follow me, young man. He led me to his trailer, went to his bookshelf, took down a copy of Great Controversy and read to me exactly what he had said. Case closed. Well, I was sort of stunned. And I determined that someday I was going to go back and look at that issue, but I was too busy. Uh, so uh, the next thing that I think is really important is the, is, uh, the influence of Roy Branson. Yeah. Roy was one of my dearest friends ever. I mean, we were very close at Andrews. Uh, in fact, Roy convinced me to join the Adventist Forum board. I was on one of the founding board members. I remember the initial meeting in the uh, boardroom at Andrews University. And I believe Al uh, Quirum was there and uh, maybe uh, some others. And I remember Roy took his shoes off and stood up on the table and said, here we are, we're in we're, we're world. <laughs> He was so much fun. So, uh, the the and Spectrum, by the way, is a huge influence in all of this. Without Spectrum, I don't think there would have been uh, the seventies uh, with all of the uh, research on Ellen White. Yeah, uh, because you might remember uh, or have read about it. You're a young person, but Roy and Harold Weiss wrote an article in one of the very first issues of Spectrum, maybe the first one, saying that Ellen White needed scholarly examination. Yeah. We need to understand her in, her in her context. We need to understand her uh, motives and, and look at her the way we look at other historical figures. And that triggered my mind with my, you know, French Revolution issue. Uh, so, uh, as you know, my friend Bill Peterson, uh, whose office was across the hall, uh, then wrote an article, a short one really, uh, just looking at the French Revolution and uh, his conclusion was simply that uh, her sources were very unreliable. Mm -hmm. It was a short paper. Her sources were Protestant historians. They were very unreliable. And, and in fact, we could not trust her chapter on the French Revolution to be accurate. And as you will, will recall, maybe there was a huge controversy about yeah. that. Elder Bradley, uh, the uh, chairman of the board of directors or the trustees at the White Estate. And... Uh, you know, I watched all that and I watched the heat Bill took and it was not pleasant. Uh, a year or so later, uh, I was reading a history of the English Reformation by A.G. Dickens, you know, because I was teaching a course in the history of England. And I noticed his focus was entirely on the religious uh, power of, of, the, uh, of the Tudor period. And uh, that really the break with Rome was driven by religion. I mean, everybody was talking about Henry VIII and his wives. Uh, the Marxist historians had put a complete different spin on it. And I found Dickens agreeing with Ellen White, uh, really looking at, uh, he wasn't, you know, the Catholics weren't the bad guys and the Protestants were the good guys, but religion was the dominating issue. Sure. So I thought this would be a good subject for a Sabbath afternoon book club. I'd been asked by students to uh, lead a discussion and I, did not, I declined because I couldn't think of any book that I was interested in that they might be interested in. And so then I selected this one. And in the process of preparing for that, for that Sabbath afternoon book discussion, I went back and made a study of the chapter on the, 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 the section on the English Reformation. It's actually just a small part of a chapter called the Early Reformers. And that, that first paper, eight or nine pages long, laid out the case to me unconvincingly that she was taking the entire account directly from Daubene. Mm -hmm. Now in the 1911 edition, people had gone back and cited the sources that Daubene was using, sometimes incorrectly, uh, but it was, it was Daubene. And uh, <clears throat> so then I decided that maybe I needed to sample another chapter, that wasn't sufficient. And I picked the chapter on the Bohemian Revelation of revolution just sort of by 
Reformation, I should say, sort of by accident. I mean, I, everyone was knew about Daubinet, uh, even the back in Willie White era, they had mentioned that as an issue. And uh, this chapter, uh, it struck me, um, was not Daubinet. It was James A. Wiley. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote a paper <clears throat> about 100 pages long, which laid out in double columns, uh, James A. Wiley's history of Protestantism and the Great Controversy. And I used the 1911 edition because that's the one I'd been, you know, familiar with. And it was, uh, it was you know, stunning. I thought it was stunning. Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> I, I put together uh, a list of about all the people upstream from me in the chain of command. Mm-hmm. My chairman, my dean, the vice president for academic affairs, Hamill, uh, Smoot was the VP, Hamill, uh, the chairman of the board, the vice chairman of the board, the head of the education department at the GC, uh, scholars at the Review and Herald, and I and and uh, the union president in the Lake Union, who was Francis Warnick, and I sent them this paper, and basically it was the position that I held throughout the entire time was you have a problem yeah sure it's not my problem i just discovered it here probably others have known this before but it was it's new to me Mm -hmm. and you have a problem and you need to solve it if i go out here trying to solve it i won't be credible i'd seen what happened to bill peterson you need to solve it you're the leaders you can figure out how over time carefully cautiously to educate the, the membership I was aware of the pastoral concern for for members, and uh, you know, most of them didn't answer. Yeah. A few did by phone. Uh, Hamill said, "Don, I I agree with you. I think Arthur White has claim, made claims for his grandmother that won't hold up, but you should just bury this in the <laughs> heritage room uh, for a while, five years." Uh, so I mean that, that so so the White Estate. Meanwhile, it said we're we're going to give it some study, and they appointed a little committee to study it. Uh, but that very summer, I was going to Washington to do some research on the history of the Adventist publishing work. I was I was obviously spending a lot of time in the uh, at the White Estate, uh, and uh, I got to know Ron Graybill really well. And now we get into a, a third big influence, uh, you know, Smoot Branson and now Graybill. And Graybill and I, this was the summer that Nixon was being impeached. And we would bring our sack lunches and sit out on the lawn of the, you know, general conference and talk politics during the lunch break. And, you know, I was near the end of the summer. I guess Ron, who had known this all along, was not sure he could really, not sure I'm the one he should tell. But about a week before I was gonna leave to go back to Andrews, I mean, you know, school starting, Ron says, Don, I need to show you something. And Ron Graybill is the one who discovered the manuscript, not me. Mm. Now, there was this drawer that had a bunch of, of manuscript, you know, big yellow sheets. And they, they were not identified or marked. They weren't in file folders. They were all sort of mixed up. And Ron said, Ron said I've spent some time digging in here. And I'm convinced this is Ellen White's handwriting. And I'm convinced these are drafts of something. This one looks like it, it said Huss at the beginning of the first page. And he said, I believe this might be a draft of the chapter in the Great Controversy. It's actually half a chapter. The other half's on Jerome. Well, third on Jerome. So uh, he said, uh, you, you need to see if you can read this. So I started trying to read it. Well, I couldn't. I mean, the handwriting, the combination of the handwriting, the bad grammar, the misspellings, uh, the, the, the lack of punctuation, it was, it was too much. So, I mean, I had no choice because I was leaving for Berrien Springs. So I went to Arthur White, who I knew fairly well. By the way, I had known him as a kid. I'd gone to school with some of his children. Mm-hmm. I'd played as a kid at his house with his, one of his sons and his dog, I still remember. Uh, my father was on the White Estate board as one of the trustees. I mean, I, I knew, I, I was very comfortable with Arthur White. And in fact, I'd already been corresponding with him on my previous paper. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know, Elder White, look, 
I need to make a photocopy of this and take it back to Andrews where I can take time to decipher it. And uh, I would like your permission to do that. And he said, I'll have to think about that. And he then said, okay, you can do that on, con on condition that A, as soon as you finish making the transcription, you return to me the photocopy. And B, that um, you don't uh, publish or, or circulate this. And I, that the only way I was going to get the manuscript was to give my word. So I did. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I wouldn't have been widely circulating it anyway, because mm -hmm. I, I'd seen what happened to Bill, to Bill Peterson. And uh, so anyway, it took me a while to transcribe it. By the way, that, that is difficult work. Uh, if anybody wants to try it, uh, I think the manuscript is now online and you can check my transcription. I'm not guaranteeing I'm perfectly accurate. A lot of words I wasn't sure about, but I gave Ellen White the benefit of the doubt. If the word was spelled wrong, but I thought maybe I was just misreading it, I would spell it right. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, I, I would give her the benefit. And, and where I wasn't, sometimes I was sort of guessing, uh, but it turned out when she was copying Wiley, it was a bit much easier <laughs> because <laughs> I could see what Wiley's word was and then I could see that's what the word was, obviously. When she was not copying Wiley, when she was going off onto sort of the spiritual dimensions of all of this, then it became really hard to read. But I, fin I eventually finished, and at this point it was pretty simple. All I needed to do was insert this uh, transcription in the middle column of the three and go back and, and now write a much more extensive introduction because I thought I better really understand the background, the context of these books. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I was aware, but had never really looked into it, how the great controversy, actually the conflict of the Asia series had developed over time, yeah. starting with a very small book and then expanding in 1884, again in 1886 mm -hmm. uh, or 88, and, and then again in 1911. So I, I tried to trace that whole story and look at the controversy about that writing as it had appeared. And it showed it turned out that it had appeared often. Mm hmm. Which, I, I, which was in my 74 paper. And when I had it all done, uh, I said to, I, I asked Arthur White, I said, look, before I send this to you for your critique of your committee, I'd like to get some input from some trusted friends of mine to critique it. No, you, I mean, you're a, a writer and an editor. Nobody likes to go public with anything until a second set of eyes, preferably a third or fourth set of eyes have taken a look at it. Yeah. And, and Arthur White said, that's fine. So I sent it out to, you know, I believe it was four people and asked for their feedback. And they all promised they would not make copies or show it to anybody else. Well, I was probably a little naive, but I purposely put typographical errors that I, were different. I found that so interesting to read. It adds a nice little element of intrigue to the story. Yeah. And by the way, I know who the leaker was. Yes, <laughs> but I've never told anybody. Uh, Here's so your chance. I will. I will say. I will say one thing. It was not Roy. Okay. It was not Roy. Um, was it somebody you think was? was it was an. It was an Andrews faculty member. Yeah. Okay. Were they um, trying to be malicious to you, or were they really excited about what you had discovered and felt? What like I think happened, happened is they showed it to a friend. Okay. I think they were. Oh, wow, I need to show this to so-and-so. And they got the promise from the friend. Yeah. Well, and as you know, if you pass on a secret once, you've lost it. That's right. Uh, so then these, uh, I call them bootleg copies, started showing up first at Loma Linda and then at Andrews and then around. And, and you know, the rest is sort of history. Um, now, uh, meanwhile, Arthur White, had his committee, he was going to study this, but they were sidetracked by Ronnie Numbers book. And that, that was their focus for several years. And, and I was sort of put on the back burner. Now there was an ongoing correspondence with Arthur White the whole time. Mm -hmm. That correspondence I had given to the Andrews University, it was called the Heritage Room then, I think it's now called the Center for Adventist Research. Mm -hmm. So those letters are there. And, and Ben MacArthur read them when he wrote that article for Spectrum. And, uh, and in fact, Eric Anderson went back and read them again when he wrote the uh, 
chapter in the current book. Yeah. Uh, and, and so then I agreed. I made lots of changes. And I thought for the purposes of this book, the reader would really enjoy seeing that. Now, you know, this book is a tedious book to read. It's not a page turner. You have to be very thoughtful and sometimes reread a page and look back from one column to the next. It's sort of tedious. But the reason I published this, that's a, sort of another story, but which I might get to. But um, my view was uh, several years ago when I decided to publish this, that it was a historical document. Sure. And that's the reason I was publishing it. I, I said, I thought I'd, people, people don't care what I think today. This is a historical document. This is what, this is what circulated. Uh, this is the way I tried to explain the problem. Yeah. And uh, this is a historical document which needs to be out there. And indeed, about the time Ben MacArthur wrote his article for Spectrum, the White Estate had put the, the, uh, my paper online, not right. drawing attention to it, but it was there. And I thought, you know, anytime they want to, the leadership of the General Conference could swerve right and they could take it down. Yeah. And uh, there may be a copy of my paper somewhere, but I doubt it. And uh, if I don't publish this, this historical document will be lost forever, possibly. So I wanted to just show the reader, here's what I wrote. But of course, uh, the 1977 copy is the one that was circulated. So no one had ever read the 1974, and it's not hugely different. But in the book, I've bold-faced and italicized and underlined so the reader can see what Arthur White wanted me to change. That's really interesting, those edits. Now, he actually wanted me to change more than I did, but, but I only show the ones I changed. And that is when I went back and compared them in preparation for this book, I was very amused because Arthur White was making a deal over an adjective, <laughs> you know. Uh, and there were several pages he just took out. And uh, then there were some things he wanted me to rewrite. Now, let me, let me jump in there on that and just talk about, <clears throat> I think it's really fascinating to see, you know, you say source, he says immediate source to describe Ellen White's use of Wiley, for instance. Um, what was his motivation? If you can speculate on that, given all the experience that you have. Well, I think before he wanted to release it uh, to the church leaders for broader feedback, mm -hmm. he was aware that copies would probably get out. Yeah. You know, and, and as it turns out, they did. Uh, you know, the bootleg issue that, that got out from Andrews. And so he wanted to soften the language as much as possible, take out some embarrassing things that there was no explanation for. Uh-huh. And... Uh, you know, uh, try to try to soften the whole thing because the the white estate that's another sort of interesting story has evolved over time as challenges to other to Ellen White have come along. Their strategy has been to concede as little as possible, mm -hmm. move the goalposts, and then shut up. And uh, that was done in the 1880s. Uh, that's why that uh, little statement at the beginning of the great controversy that I quote, mm -hmm. that's why that was added. You know, Kellogg called it a, a crawl out, uh, <laughs> but it was a response to, to criticism. The criticism then, and this is, I think, really interesting. I don't think I make this point in the book. I did. I guess I do. The criticism was not that uh, she was borrowing stuff from other people. The criticism was that she wasn't citing it. Yeah. It's interesting that those that generation didn't have a problem with her copying stuff from the historians. It's almost as if they knew she hadn't seen that in vision. Yeah, and in fact, she was she was promoting these very books that she was copying from in the review. Exactly. So I, neither she nor her readers were expecting all of that stuff to be based on visions. Yeah, but they did object to the fact that she was not citing quotations, you know? So, you know, uh, that, that little uh, crawl out, as Kellogg called it, was put in the 1888 edition. 
And then in 1911, they, they went even further and revised sentences, which you can now see in my book, because I, although I'm now using the 1888 edition, uh, there are footnotes identifying all the changes made between 1888 and 1911. So, so that's the widest strategy, you know, yield what you need to, move the goalposts, and then sort of bury the issue. And, and they did that again in 1919. And the issue was pretty successfully buried until yeah. the seven, 50 years. And it's been pretty much buried for the last 50 years, yeah. actually. Um, though there's been a huge amount of research on Ellen White and lots of books, written articles about her. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the issue of her sources, oh, did she see it in vision or did she not? Is it, is it true or is it false? That issue has, has sort of lain dormant. Uh, and the one who really resurrected it quite a bit was George Knight in his book, uh, Ellen White's Afterlife. Yeah. And, and his point is, is that a lot more was claimed for her after she died than she had claimed when she was alive. Now, by the way, she did claim a lot. There, we still have a bit of a dilemma there, which we might get to if you have time. But yeah, do you let's let's jump into that because I think you know George Knight. You you reference him and also Gil Valentine and the work that they did as part of the stepping stones that led you yeah. to publish this book. Do you agree? You know, George Knight's been a kind of a comfortable middle ground in Ellen White studies popularizing, nuancing, it doesn't have the sort of brutal force of, of, of Ron Numbers or Walter Ray. Um, in what you're doing here, do you, do you agree that, uh, you know, basically I, I, I think Arthur George, White was claiming more than Ellen White was? Yes, I think Arthur, Arthur White was claiming more. And I think Willie White was claiming more than Arthur White. Willie White was claiming more than his mother. And Arthur White was claiming pretty much the same thing Willie did, maybe even more so. And, and, and the nuance was, which is, is sort of subtle, but really, you know, pretty obvious to, to, to any reader, the, 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 the Arthur White spin, it's, it's sort of subtle. It's, but it, it, it's the belief that was held when I was a kid reading Great Controversy as a kid. And it is the belief that I think prevailed from 1919 all the way up until, till really, you know, Bill and Ron and me and others started digging. Yeah. Uh, and that was that, uh, and I'm just talking about the history right now, not about the science. Sure. She saw it first in vision. Then when she read history, from time to time, she would find a paragraph, a phrase that, oh, I, that's something I saw. And because it was stated so nicely and clearly, she would copy that. Mm -hmm. That was that was the argument before sure. my work. I've heard that. Now it turns out when you when you read uh, the, the book here, it's totally an impossible position. Yeah, because she's not finding a statement here and there. She's basically copying hundred pages. The manuscript is eighty six pages, I think. She's copying eighty six pages directly from a source. And it's, you can see it. Uh, yeah, now she uh, abridges it some of the time. Some of the time she skipped a chapter. Some of the times, I mean, a, a paragraph. Sometimes she skips two or three paragraphs. Uh, but uh, it's everything is a close paraphrase and frequently an exact quote. And it's sequential. There's nothing in the manuscript that's not in Wiley's book. No fact, nothing. It's copied. Uh, so she didn't just happen to run across something here or there. Uh, so uh, after, after the, my paper was examined by Arthur White, uh, he made a little, uh, another, he moved the goalposts just a little bit more. And, and those are, are pointed out, they're sort of subtle, but they're pointed out in the chapter where I uh, sort of analyze his toward a factual concept of inspiration. Mm -hmm. so, now the, now, so now the argument is in, in the process of, borrowing from the historians uh, descriptions of things she had seen, she would occasionally pick up a minor error. So, so that's, that's, I think, the official position since the 1970s. Yeah. 
Now, now a historian would say, what's, what's a minor error and what's a major error? <laughs> you know, if it's minor, why is it in the book? Yeah. You know, she doesn't tell us the color of the clothes John Huss was wearing. That would be a minor point. Mm -hmm. But the points she does mention are all the, the minor points she mentions are all mentioned for a reason, uh, because they help to hook the narrative together and make it go. And furthermore, some of the mistakes are not minor. I mean, to, to describe Prague under interdict as shutting the whole city down for weeks and everybody suffering, when in fact it didn't happen, that's minor. Uh, to put Huss in one place when he's in another place is not minor. I mean, if I put George Washington in South Carolina when he was in fact in Virginia, you know, people would say that's not a minor error. So, but, but that's sort of the, the position that was the, the fallback. Well, uh, back, back to George, uh, he's a good historian, a fabulous writer, a friend. I, I enjoy his work, I enjoy his company. He wrote a nice blurb for the back of the book. Mm -hmm. uh, George's history is as solid as anybody's. I mean, he doesn't fudge the facts. The facts are the facts. Now, uh, he may uh, see the facts in a slightly different light than someone else, but historians do that all the time. Yeah. And, and it gets to an interesting question, which I guess we're not ready for yet, but, and I didn't put this in the book. Uh, I have said we need a definition of inspiration that can account for the facts. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that there are, notwithstanding that I call it a neglected problem with a forgotten answer, uh, the answer that was forgotten during the period from the 70s to the present was that she actually admitted a lot in her own lifetime and that her contemporaries didn't view her the same way we have since. But it's also uh, true that she made a lot of very strong claims. And they are in Arthur White's paper toward a factual concept of inspiration. Yeah. And I quote those claims. That's a really interesting chapter. And some of them are very strong. And, and uh, you know, uh, I, I, I think, I think it, uh, a definition of, in, of, of inspiration has to account for those. Uh, and, and I don't attempt to do that in this book. I thought of writing a paper where I would try to do that, but I, I don't know if I will or not. <laughs> uh, but, but anyway, uh, the, reason, the reason I did publish the book was because, A, I, I went to a meeting of the Association of Adventist Historians. Mm -hmm. You have another question? Yeah, actually, let me uh, kind of bookend what you were just saying about this chapter four on the, this factual uh, concept of inspiration, because I think okay. your, your paragraph here on page 229 is worth reading for the audience so they kind of understand what you're saying. If you don't mind, I'd love to get your thoughts on what you wrote here. To me, the evidence is indisputable. Ellen White read history, period. She dreamt about what she read and believed the dreams were visions of the night. But whatever she saw, what she wrote was what she read. No visions were required. I think this really helps break things out, and I haven't heard people really separate out how she was reading, dreaming, what she was attributing um, the narratives to. Adventists should take seriously the spiritual intent of Ellen White's historical writing. Her history should inspire them, but there is no need to believe that it is based on visions. The evidence is that it was not. A concept of inspiration that does not recognize this fact is not factual. Uh, that you must have worked, uh, labored over the wording there to really summarize the issues. I did, but I, but I think that is, that is, uh, you might say the distilled truth. Yeah. Uh, it, I think the evidence is indisputable. Now there are people that are still disputing it. <laughs> you know, uh, there are still people who believe in a flat earth. Um, you know, there are people who believe a lot of things Yeah. and, uh, they can twist and turn and come up with explanations. And, but it's like uh, the uh, Ptolemaic uh, explanation for how the solar system works. You know, it actually did predict the motion of the stars uh, and the planets. I mean, the motion of the planets. But uh, it was clearly uh, a very complicated argument. <laughs> and the, the simpler argument that Copernicus put forth is that, hey, wait a minute, they revolve around the sun. <laughs> Everything doesn't revolve around the earth. So the, the simple, obvious explanation 
is that she's copying historians. Uh, the pattern of usage is overwhelming, whether she copied historical errors or not. And somewhere else in this book, I state that if, if Great Controversy was based on Thomas Fudge, the current leading scholar on Huss, and was doing to Fudge the same thing she did to Wiley, it really wouldn't change the conclusion. She's getting the work from a historian. Yeah. In this case, we wouldn't find any errors because Fudge has dotted the I's and crossed the T's. So the errors are not the important point, but they're interesting. Yeah. Uh, but but the, the, the pattern of copying itself is the evidence. And I think it's indisputable. Now, someone else might read it and say, oh, I dispute that. Well, fine. Uh, they can believe whatever they want. But I don't think you would ever convince a third party of that point of view if they didn't already start saying, I believe first, and then I'm going to try to figure out some way to keep my belief and, and acknowledge this. Uh, we know Ellen White read history. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, books were recommended to her. Yeah. She found books in, uh, uh, you know, Andrew's library. Uh, and we know she had dreams. Gravion makes a point in the book, as you know, from reading his chapter, that she didn't have visions uh, at that period of her life. Uh, she had dreams, which she called visions of the night. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, have been described as a flashlight. Now, that's not a video where it goes on for 20 or 30 minutes in a nice even flow. It's a picture, a flashlight. It's like dreams, mm -hmm. right? Visions of the night, dreams. Now, there's no doubt that she was, I, I, I mean, I, I believe Ellen White is, in my view, is not a fraud. She's an honest person. She's human. Wow. She she's, she's capable of exaggeration, you know. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but uh, she's not trying to mislead a bunch of people and pull the wool over their eyes. Uh, she had these dreams, and she did see flashlights. Uh, when she's recalling all this, you know, years later when she's asked about it, uh, keeping the chronology straight might be a little bit difficult. You know? Yeah. I read it, and then I dreamed about it. Sure. Here's a woman who's intentionally spiritual, obsessed, if you will, with this uh, calling. Yeah. And, and she's reading, she's reading Dabonet or Wiley or someone else, and she's struck by it. And she, she decides to write it, you know? Yeah. So now she has the book open in front of her and she's writing and she's working late into the night. We know that was a pattern. And she dreams about what she's working on. We all do. Yeah. Years later, when asked, does she remember whether, whether the dream came before or after? You know, I have a good memory for a lot of things. I can remember my students at Andrews University, but I can't remember which year they were in, or which ones were first and which ones were second and which ones were third. Uh, so, I mean, I think that paragraph describes what we actually, that, I think that paragraph describes the evidence. Yeah. Now, someone might try to interpret the evidence differently, although I don't think it's possible to do that in a rational way. But, uh so my point is the spiritual intent we should take seriously. Her history should inspire us, and it does. Um, but we don't need to believe it was based on visions. And the evidence that it is that it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, so the, the, the current fallback position that she – here's another point. The, the current view requires you to read Great Controversy. And if it's a big point, it has to be true. If it's a little point, it could be an error. So, so the reader is supposed to, this sentence is true. This sentence is, was a seen in vision and this sentence wasn't. This sentence was, this sentence wasn't. It, furthermore, if she saw this in vision, then Wiley had to have seen it in vision. <laughs> so as you know from reading this, Wiley tells us sometimes what Huss was thinking. No, no historical documentation. How did Wiley know? And Ellen White quotes, quotes Wiley, angels came and spoke to him in the night. Yeah. We have no letters, no, no testimony that that happened. Uh, so Wiley has to be inspired. And then furthermore, there's the argument of what I call uh, uh, an inspirational parsimony. Uh, why would God bother to give you a vision revealing stuff that everybody already knows? It's out there. 
What's the point of that? Yeah. Um, I've got one more question on this, uh, just on that topic, because um, I really appreciate your comparative analysis and the methodology really lay it out for folks. Um, there's chapters in here that are riveting. Uh, and then there's chapters that are there for someone who really is going to question the evidence. And, you know, here's you've kind of put it all together for your interlocutors. Um, you have really you've you've traced the writing of Ellen White in a way which is connected to her consciousness. And I'm just wondering, um, <laughs> given that, uh, you know, Maybe it takes inspiration to get inside uh, Huss's head uh, and understand what was going on. I want to come back to that. Maybe this doesn't go anywhere, but I'm curious because you've spent so much time kind of seeing how the pattern of her writing obviously connected to the thoughts that she's having. Do you have any kind of insights into the way that her mind worked? I know this is more about sort of psychology and consciousness. And that's not really the focus of your book, but I'm curious if if there were moments where you just thought, wow, that's a really, you know, that's an insight into the way that she would emphasize or de-emphasize reality. I don't know that I don't know that I can answer that. Um, okay. If you look at the, you could call them digressions from the history, mm -hmm. and there are a lot of them. I mean, it's maybe what thirty percent of the manuscript. Yeah. Um, if you look at those digressions from history, I think that really tells you a lot about Ellen White. Mm -hmm. You know, more the, the copying is, it doesn't tell you much. Yeah. This is the same kind of thing a high school kid would do writing a term paper. Yeah. You know, finding a source that the teacher doesn't know about. And no, no one, no one would say that Ellen White wasn't creative. Everybody was creative. You know, people, composers, people, novelists, people who create stuff, they're creative. And even if you're writing a paper, uh, you know, you don't take everything. You take the stuff that you like, yeah. some stuff you paraphrase, some stuff you quote. Uh, it's not too hard to figure out what's going on in her head when she's reading it. This is really interesting. Oh, that's a wonderful way to say it. Mm. Uh, I got to summer. I got to bridge this a little bit. You know, it's, it's getting into too much detail here. My reader won't be interested in that. I'm, I'll just summarize with a sentence or two. Okay. And you notice that Marion Davis gets a crack at it. Yeah. She enormously, the, her work is more than editorial. She'll take entire huge paragraphs and turn them into a sentence. These paragraphs are paragraphs that are almost directly taken from Wiley. So you could say she's paraphrasing Wiley, or you could say she's paraphrasing Ellen White. But, you know, there's a tremendous amount of that going on. But when Ellen White shifts and goes into uh, the the Cain and Abel and the re relationships and the angels and 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 you know starts doing all of that, then I think you can see how her mind's working because she's writing this and she's so moved by what she's writing that it just makes her think about oh my, you know, uh, what is the spiritual meaning of all this and. And then she goes off and for three, four pages sometimes. Mm -hmm. And and that's just first draft stuff. That that stream of consciousness, that's that's not edited stuff. She's just riding away. That's her heart speaking. I think. I mean, I think if you want to try to get into her mind. Yeah. Uh I, I mean I, she was a remarkable woman. I actually believe that if I had known her, I would have liked her. Uh, I've read her letters with people like C.H. Jones and E.R. Palmer. These are business people, tough. They love the woman. They share recipes for canning food and talk about their teenagers and how they're having struggles with this or that. You, you see two really good friends exchanging personal information. Uh, there's a reason why people liked her. A lot of people liked her. Now, she could be mean. Uh, she was really tough on her oldest son, Edson White, yeah. her surviving son, Edson White. Graybill does and, a great uh, job sharing. And I, and I think in Gil Valentine's book, you see his biography of, of uh, J.N. Andrews. Mm -hmm. You see how in his, he's dying and she's just hammering him. I mean, it's just, ooh, you know? 
so um, she's not perfect. And I think as we try to un understand and, and you know, appreciate her, her spiritual gift, I think we take Willie White, we look at it. It's important to consider what Willie White says. You know, he, he knew her well and lived with her closely. But it's not uh, dispositive. Her own statements are more important. And the, and the ones given at the time, all these quotes from Ellen White about her gift that are in the paper, Concept of Inspiration, you will note that Arthur White cites the source where they've been published. But he doesn't give you the date they were written and who they were written to and why they were written. And that would be a piece of research someone ought to do yeah. because my guess is the strongest claims are written later yeah. than, than, than the, I mean, the claims that are a little bit looser, a little more general, I think are the ones that are more contemporary. And the stronger claims are written or later, maybe 15 or, you know, 20 years later. I'm not sure if that would be the case, but I think it is, and I'd like to have someone do that research. Uh, so uh, I, I think I think I think Ellen White is very valuable, and it's a treasure we should keep. But my, my view is, and I think I've said it. Eric says it better than me. If the, the if the church doesn't deal with this issue, it is not going to go away. Yeah, it's never going to go away. Yeah, all these new generations of Adventists coming up in in Africa and in South America and whatever. Yeah. They may not be aware of all this, mm -hmm. but they will someday. Yeah. Their children, their grandchildren, they're going to be going to school. They're going to be getting PhDs. They're going to be getting, becoming doctors and lawyers. All this is going to happen. Yep. And, and eventually they are going to discover the same evidence. And, and church leaders are going to be faced with this. The next generation of church leaders are going to be faced with the same problem. So at, uh, a, mass, it, at a mass level. It, it's past time to deal with this openly and honestly with the membership. Yeah. And I can understand if the church wants to move slowly, take several years, maybe say nothing for a while and just change the curriculum in the elementary schools, but they can't just keep ignoring it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's just a mistake. And I think it hurts the church and could eventually divide it. Yeah. Um, you were about to talk about going to the Adventist Historians uh, Conference. Would you kind of maybe talk a little bit about that that history? Well, the uh, Association of SDA Historians, ASDA, mm -hmm. was started when I was teaching at Andrews. In yeah. fact, I was the first president of ASDA. And they're meeting and, in uh, April, and I'll be and there. Spectrum is sponsoring a panel of historians this year. Yeah. And they, and, and they had a meeting in Keene. I live in Houston, so Keene's not too far away. And some of my friends were gonna be there. And I was invited, uh, and I had, been, I had been supporting financially uh, Adventist historians who write yeah. Adventist history. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm, I'm trying to stimulate, a bunch of us old guys are not gonna be around much longer. And where's the next generation of Adventist historians who are studying objectively our past? So I, I was trying to stimulate that. So they invited me to their meeting in Keene and I went and I met a lot of old friends and introducing me, Eric Anderson said that I had written the most important unpublished paper <laughs> in, in, uh, in the 20th century. Uh, not the most important thing by any means, but it was unpublished. Bonnie, mentioned, so Bonnie mentioned something like that to me decades ago. So people came, so people came up and others, many old friends that said, Don, why don't you publish it? Why don't you publish it? And I, I did not have permission from the White Estate even then. And I thought, well, I think I'll try. So I sent an email to Jim Nix, who was the uh, director of the White Estate. He responded, return email. Well, I think it was return email within a day. He said, sure. Uh, so I thought, well, the, the church is changing. This is great. And in fact, uh, the fact that Oak and Acorn has published this yeah. shows to me that the church is changing. So I thought, well, that's great. I thought I'm going to do it as a historical document just to get it out there. Uh, 
And I didn't start with the idea of adding, of putting it in context. It was just, I was just going to publish the paper. And then I got to talking with people uh, that I respect, Gil, John, Larry, Garrity, others, uh, Eric, others. And they said, no, no, you need to put your paper in context because there's two stories going on here. Uh, and so my book, in a sense, is like a double play. You know, there are two stories going on. One is, is Ellen White's history based on visions? The other is the Adventist church in the 20th century coping with the problem. Yeah. Specifically in the 1970s, coping with the problem. And so that, that, so that was other people's idea. <laughs> uh, so, so that's why uh, some, that's why I asked permission from you to reprint two articles from Spectrum and why I tried to get permission from the, uh, brethren to reprint uh, Arthur White's paper and the series he wrote for the review. By the way, that's a funny little story too. I made the request in May, and I think it's in the footnote now. Uh, I made the request in May. I got a response from the White Estate saying uh, they were going to have a meeting of their board of trustees and I would hear date certain before the 1st of July. The Review and Herald never even responded. I never got a, I never got the courtesy of response. And I'm asking to reprint something that they printed and wanted the whole church to read. Yeah. Encouraged everybody to read. I never got a response from the Review. Oh, it turns out I did get a response from the White Estate about three or four weeks after the deadline had passed, and I had given up on them. Uh, but I didn't get it. I mean, it was an email, but I never received the email. And it was not until um, uh, uh, Elder Dr. Burt. Mm, uh, Merlin Burt. Yeah. Uh, noticed this, that he sent me an email and said, hey, hey, we gave you permission. So I actually changed the footnote in a, in a, in a subsequent printing uh, to acknowledge that. Uh, but even but I had already uh, given up and rewritten, and instead of, you know, reprinting the paper had excerpted from it what I thought were the key points anyway. Yeah. And that's what makes up that chapter. Um, let's talk a little bit about your, um, the other authors of the chapters in here. So Ben MacArthur contributes, you've already mentioned Ron Graybill and Eric Anderson, and we don't have to go over there. They all really add a lot to it. Why did you, you know, you're talking about the, the second story. What, the the church was trying to do in the 1970s um what why did you reach out to them and and what part of the story are they telling without going into the whole detail well well the first point is that i had critics you know this the bootleg copy was around and there were yeah. critics and uh and some of their criticism showed up in the sda you know uh EGW encyclopedia. So they were widespread. And the critics uh, were saying that she didn't make historical errors. And they were going through mental gymnastics to try to prove that. And in some cases, just distorting things. And I decided that if I'm gonna reprint the paper, uh, I at least need to rebut my critics. And I asked Ron Graybill to do that because he had done a lot of work on that at the time. You know, there's this little story in here about our friend Gerhard Hassel, yeah, uh, who had, in a really, I would say, unethical way, uh, tried to undermine my work without me knowing about it. That had gotten Ron all stirred up, and he had done a bunch of research on historical errors, and he was satisfied that they were valid, and so was Bob Olson and others. Um, so, and then there are others who picked up on his work, and, you know, so there are half a dozen critics out there that have taken the position that there were no errors. <clears throat> so Graybill was the perfect one to write a chapter saying, okay, let's look at the most modern authorities and the documents and let's see. And he concludes what he concludes. You can read his chapter. Then it also turns out that my article in Spectrum about the shifting views of inspiration, mm -hmm. uh, I, it's been cited a lot. And I think it maybe remains to this day the best summary of all that Ellen White research that went on in the 70s. Yeah. And it actually, it actually, Fred Harder in a Spectrum article early on anticipated much of this. 
Uh, and there were a lot of people involved. And I, and, I want, and I want the readers of my paper to see the context in which it was around. I mean, it was, there was movement in the church. People were thinking, people were writing. And uh, they, were not, they were not having questions about her uh, authority. Uh, but just after I wrote this, they were having questions about her authority earlier, sure. particularly in the area of science uh, and geology. Uh, so uh, that chapter was to put my paper in the context of this broader work. And then Ben MacArthur's paper, which he had written and also published in Spectrum, gave the backstory of my negotiations with the White Estate. And I thought that's also part of the context. Yeah. And then Ron is rebutting the critics. And then finally, I wanted someone to sort of tie it all up and say, where are we now? 50 years later, where are we now? And Eric uh, took on that role and I think wrote a very clever, uh, witty, Eric's yeah. a great writer, uh, a chapter in which he tries to point out that uh, we don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater, to use a hackneyed cliche. Uh, uh, we can treasure Ellen White for her value uh, without necessarily accepting that everything she says is an authority. Um, because clearly, some things she says can be proven to be not so. So that, um, you know, gives us um, a moral responsibility in a way. It puts it back on the reader and the, and the Adventist. We, we have to uh, make decisions and it requires some critical thinking. Um, which I guess is scary to some, but it also offers some creative spiritual um, space. Yeah, and I really, in this book, I really didn't want to tell <clears throat> Adventists, here's what you need to believe. I wanted to say, here's the evidence. Here's how I interpret it. Here's how Arthur White interprets it. You choose. You know, here, here's the refutation of the, of the idea that there are no, no errors, that, that's part of the evidence. So here's the evidence, here's one way of interpreting it. Here's the way that the church leaders have interpreted. You choose, this is a job for the Adventist public, for the membership. Yeah. But in order to make this choice, they need to know what the evidence is. And they need to know how the brethren have responded to the evidence. Now, if the brethren have some new responses, I hope we'll see them. Um. You may not know because I'm not sure that you uh, pay that as much a attention because of probably some uh, wise choices you've made. But my job means that I have to pay attention to Ted Wilson. And I did notice that he's doing a series on YouTube where he's going through each of the great controversy chapters and expounding upon them. <laughs> well, <laughs> so... Um, I wonder. I wonder if he will acknowledge that anybody has actually pointed out how these chapters came to be written, or will he just take them as they stand? Yeah. And you know, frankly, Alexander, it's a mystery to me why uh, Ted Wilson and others want to distribute millions of copies of Great Controversy. I I don't see how that helps. No. Uh, I don't, I don't see how, how the, and I actually referenced that in this, in the 1974 paper I wrote. Uh, the great enemy of, Christ, of Christianity, it's not been the papacy. The papacy kept Christianity alive for thousands of years, a couple thousand, 1500, whatever. Uh, you could say it's Islam. Boy, there were really fights between Muslims and Christians for a, a long time. Yeah. You know? Uh, not a word about Islam. I completely, we've just had a fight going on Spectrum between one of our authors, Admiral Nakube and Clifford Goldstein, who's kind of an apologist for the Ted Wilson agenda. And uh, the missing uh, story of Islam, if you understand the history of Christendom in Europe, Islam is the major force that's threatening the very foundations of their, you know, the civilization. And they would have conquered all Europe, but, but yeah. you know, they get it in Vienna and 
you know, won a couple of battles in France. I mean, who knows? Yeah, if Daniel's having visions about the history of 2,000 years of Christian uh, existence, you know, why is Islam not part of that? That's a question I and, have. And, and, and describing the end of the world is happening in 19th century America over Sunday laws. How does that make sense to Adventist believers in Africa, in, 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 in China, mm-hmm. in the South Pacific? Uh, you know, I mean, I just, I don't see why it's to the church's advantage to, to uh, try to distribute this book like the leaves of autumn. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, a national myopia is what we're, we're still so focused on America as the center of uh, global Christianity, and as Philip Jenkins, among many others, have pointed out, that is rapidly changing. It's like if it doesn't happen here, it's not important. Yeah. Well, it's been great talking with you, and uh, maybe we need a you know we need a campaign to distribute this book around. I think it would make a really uh, interesting discussion book for certain Sabbath school classes and uh, the. The history that you lay out um, in the 1970s is something for any Adventist who's interested in the the kind of history of Adventist education. They really need to pay attention to that because there is a lot of uh, hard work put in by our historians and some important navigation um, that occurred there as well. As you look back on it, my final question here. Um, what lessons did you learn from this experience that have guided you for your life? Well, besides I've don't been, share papers that you uh, don't want other people to read. <laughs> uh, well, I, I want to make one point and then I'll answer your question. Yeah. Uh, I, I want everybody to note the centrality of Andrews University and Spectrum hmm. in this whole story. Uh, Spectrum made possible an outlet. Without Spectrum, a lot of this wouldn't have happened. And if you think about it, the people that have dug deeply into Ellen White, they have their roots at Andrews University in the 1970s. Ronnie, Bill Peterson, myself, Don Casebolt, uh, they, all, they all go back to Andrews in the 70s. And, I, and let me tell you, it was an exciting time to be alive. Hmm. Uh, the Adventist church had a university at last, and, and Adventists from all over North America were sending their brightest kids to Andrews, and we had good students. I had half a dozen history majors that I'd put up against history majors anywhere. Eric, Ben MacArthur, Harvey Bernice, Brian Strayer, uh, I could name more. Uh, John Ney, who, who went into the diplomatic corps. We had really bright students, and there was this electricity of, we're doing something fresh and new. And it was killed. It died away. Uh, I guess in terms of big lessons, I've learned that in the end, uh, you have to rely on your reason. Your reason can fool you, it can trick you, but it's the best tool you have. Uh, Revelation doesn't trump reason because reason determines what revelation you believe. There are a lot of people who claim to reveal stuff. But if you don't have reason, you could select Muhammad, or you could select, um, you know, uh, Joseph Smith, or you could select uh, one of these cult leaders, you know, uh, David Koresh. I mean, you, the reason determines what you choose to put faith in. Mm-hmm. And I think faith can be irrational. In fact, it obviously is. Yeah. Uh, but it can't be irrational. And and I think that's the the, the deepest insight I've gotten doing all this work is that uh, Paul says faith is the belief in substance of things you can't see. You know. But if you can see it and it's not true, then then you can't believe in it. Yeah. So so you so it's it's not irrational to believe in God. It's sort of irrational. There's a lot of evidence around that confirms that this is a good choice. Uh, there's a lot of reasons to be an Adventist and say this is a good choice. Uh, but, but faith and revelation 
can be a-rational, and I think by definition must be. If it's rational, you don't need faith in re revelation. You can do the math, and there it is. But but it but uh, it can't. Belief cannot be irrational. And so, flawed as your reason may be, you gotta go with it. And uh, yeah, that that has actually guided my life. Hmm. Well, thanks for those words of wisdom. It's been a delight talking with you, and thank you for all the work that you've put into telling the Adventist story here. Well, it's been a pleasure. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive.